Heavenly Father, thank you once more for this opportunity to come so freely to worship you and to study the word. We know that many others in many other places don't have this privilege. And so, Lord, we don't want to take this for granted. I pray that our hearts will be ready, our hearts will be good soil, and we ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us and teach us what Jesus really wants us to know and to learn that we can serve him correctly and accurately. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me start with a quotation from a book that I personally find very edifying and helpful and useful. This book is called Say to Our Keepers, and you can find this quotation in page 114. And in this section or this chapter, I write, God does not promise that our assigned tasks would be easy ones, nor would the same be executed in comfortable and cushy situations. We must be reminded that we are in the business of advancing the kingdom of God. And wherever there is advancement, we can expect opposition. If I were to ask you, would you like to have opposition? I think our answers would all be no. Nobody wants any opposition at any point in time. But the truth is this. Once you take up a kingdom position, once you move on a kingdom assignment, you should expect opposition. Not that you will always get it, you know, or there must always be an opposition in some way that's obvious, but you must at least be prepared for it. Why do I say this is so? Because we see it happened to Jesus. It happened to our Lord, our Master, our King, and in the same way ourselves, we are His disciples, we then must be prepared for the same or that possibility or that rather high probability that oppositions can also happen to us. You know, we've come to a point in Matthew where we are seeing increasing hostility against Jesus. I've already given you this introduction in the past teachings, but it's good for us just to look at this broad picture so that we can understand tonight's teaching a little bit better. Matthew chapter 11, at the end, verses 28 and 30, we see that there's an invitation in the teaching, Good Yoke. We actually looked into this section where Jesus said, come to me. It was an open invitation. He says, come to me. Don't go to the others. You know, come to me. Take my yoke. My yoke is a good one. My yoke is the right one. It is easy. It is light. Learn from me. And following that, in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 8, then we see a confrontation. The Pharisees followed them into the grain fields, saw the disciples plucking uh, grain, and then began to confront Jesus why the disciples were not keeping the law or they were breaking the law of the Sabbath. And we saw that they missed the entire point of what Sabbath is. They missed the entire point of what the law is all about. Instead of learning the Sabbath as rest, redemption, and a time and an opportunity to reset, it all became religious. It was a bunch of rules and of regulations. And yet they confronted Jesus thinking that they are correct and that Jesus is wrong. Following that, in Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 to 14, in the last teaching, lawful, awful, we all want to be lawful. We want to keep the law. But if you become legalistic, lawful can become awful. 
And here, Jesus then demonstrates the Spirit of the Lord. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Go and learn this. Go and understand what this really means. Now, after invitation, confrontation, demonstration, this next passage from verses 15 to 21, we now see opposition. Very clearly, the Bible records their intent to destroy Jesus, to take Jesus out. And here, this section, we will learn how Jesus then deals with this opposition. And there are principles for us as and when we face or experience opposition when we are on kingdom assignment. So with this broad context, let's get into the text. The passage is from verse 15 to 21, but we will start from verse 14 so that we have a good continuation from the previous section. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. And when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. In this passage, we see that Matthew has quoted something from Isaiah. And he prefaces this with one statement. He says that it might be fulfilled. In other words, Matthew is trying to bring an attention to an Old Testament quotation that would show who Jesus is and how Jesus fulfills it in the way that he behaves and the way that he moves. That it might be fulfilled. Let's spend a little bit of time down here. This is just one of many Old Testament quotations in the book of Matthew you'll find that there are more than 60 references to Old Testament Scripture or the Hebrew Scriptures. The reason is simple. Matthew's intent is saying, look, you know your Scriptures. You know what Old Testament is saying. I'm not giving you anything new. Jesus comes onto the scene. Old Testament prophets have already prophesied about this Messiah. They've already spoken about Jesus, and I'm trying to help you tie it in together to connect the dots so that you'll see that Jesus is the King, He is the Messiah, and we are to embrace Him as well as His kingdom. Now specifically, this is a quotation from Isaiah, and this is not the first, not second, but this is the fourth time that Isaiah is being quoted in the book of Matthew. And Matthew chapter 12, 18 to 21, which we just read, actually quotes Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 4. And in fact, of all the quotations, this is the longest quotation. Longest one. And in fact, he does not quote word for word. He actually paraphrases this in his use in Matthew chapter 12. Now specifically, he draws from Isaiah 42, which is what we call the servant songs. If you are familiar with the book of Isaiah, there are four songs called the servant songs. And these four songs are prophecies about a coming servant of the Lord. 
everything about these songs will describe this servant, the nature of this servant, will describe the service of this person, as well as prophesy the suffering that this servant will go through. And not only that, at the end, this servant will be victorious. This servant will be exalted to the highest place. The people reading this or hearing this in those days, they would have thought that in the first place, it would be referring to Israel because it's very clear in Isaiah's words, he would name Israel as God's servant. And it is not wrong because Israel was called out of Egypt to be a servant of God. Israel would be God's kingdom instrument to show as a light unto the Gentiles. But there's a little problem. By the time it came to Isaiah, Israel would have failed to fulfill her corporate assignment. And then the picture then shifts almost like very, very subtly from a corporate servant called Israel. It shifts to a chosen Messiah, an individual, a chosen person who will then fulfill this assignment that Israel failed to fulfill. And in the quotations of the New Testaments, many would draw from Isaiah as they position Jesus as this prophesied Messiah, and that He is the one, He is the chosen servant, and all the songs that are written about this Messiah were all fulfilled in this person called Jesus. And so this is to show you that this is a prophetic fulfillment. Matthew is saying all these things are happening because Isaiah has to be fulfilled. And it has been fulfilled in this one person, in this Messiah called Jesus. Now, there's something there that I don't want you to miss. Once you understand that this whole situation happens as part of prophetic fulfillment, we can then learn and then accept that the opposition that Jesus faced and all the opposition that would follow and all the increasing hostility, all that would have been very much a part of the much larger picture. And so when opposition comes against us, we mustn't see as if it's something that we should be surprised. It could be happening because it's part of a much larger picture. And God can allow it because it is a part of this whole prophetic fabric that we may not be aware of. Now, this is important also because it counters a very popular contemporary notion that if you are walking in the center of God's will, if you are fulfilling an assignment that God has given to you, then it should be smooth. There should be no problem. Everything should happen according to plan. Have you heard some teachings that might be like that? Or if you have not heard a teaching like that, it's easy for us to buy into a thought like that. Because we all want everything to be perfect, right? And so we would very quickly just presume that if I'm on a kingdom assignment, nothing bad is going to happen to us. There will be no opposition at all. And so consequently, if we have that kind of a belief or that wrong notion, too many will give up when an opposition is encountered. Because we will then rationalize. If there's a problem, that means it cannot be la. Because if it's a part of God's plan, then everything will be smooth. Now, it's a very, very dangerous thing, right? Because then you will give up on your assignment. You will never do something that is difficult. At the slightest sign of trouble, you will just run away or give up. And so, Matthew is saying, look, everything is happening according to prophecy. 
everything is happening to Jesus because it is like that. Prophecy has already declared this to be true, and he is just moving in accordance to God's plan. Now, how he acts and how he responds in the face of opposition is also a fulfillment of what prophecy has described about this servant of the Lord. Now that we understand this, then we can accept the possibility or the probability of oppositions coming against us. And now we will unpack this whole passage and we will see what we can learn from this account. And so as I went through this, at least for myself, I picked out seven principles. And I'll just go through these seven quick points for you. And I hope that it will be helpful. Now, these are principles, which means that once you catch the idea, you need to then see how you can apply it in the situations that you are going through. Principles can be the same for all of us, but our situations can be very, very different. Okay, so seven principles. If you're ready, let's go. Point number one. What I see from this passage, principle number one is pick your battles. Learn how to pick your battles. You must know when to engage and when to disengage. We are told that the Pharisees went out and plotted against Jesus and they wanted to destroy him. But Jesus knew it. He knows that these guys are going to come and it's going to increase. And he does not take this head on at this point in time. He withdraws from them. Now, you remember in the last teaching, we said that legalism makes lawful awful. Now, why is that so? Just to recap a little bit. If you are a legalistic person, legalism destroys yourself. Your heart gets hardened, you kill yourself, and not only that, legalism will also destroy others. This is because legalism wants to tell you what to do, how to do, when to do it. And if you don't agree, a legalistic person is not interested to hear you out. When a legalistic person does not get his or her way, the first thought is, how do I come against you? How do I remove you? How do I bring you into submission? Because I am right, you are wrong, don't try and talk to me, I am not interested at all. And this was the situation that Jesus faced often with the religious leaders. They were legalistic. They refused to listen. All they wanted to do was to remove Jesus because they were threatened and they were insecure in their own positions. Now, let's not get a wrong idea. Do not be mistaken. Jesus in withdrawing, let's be clear, Jesus was not a coward. Jesus was not a pushover at all. I want to submit to you that our Lord knew when to engage and when to disengage. When you read the Gospels, there are many, many examples of opposition in the Gospels, increasing hostility, and there will be more and more challenges in time to come up ahead all the way through to the cross. And every time there's a challenge, there's an opposition, Jesus knows how to conduct himself, when to withdraw, when to engage, and how to respond correctly. In this case, Jesus knew. He said, look, I know exactly what is in your mind. I'm not going to stay here and wait for you to kill me. It's not my time yet. So he withdraws and he picks his battles. And this is a simple point. You need to know when to engage and when to withdraw. You don't have to fight every battle. You have to learn how to fight the right ones, pick the right ones. 
For example, <laughs> you know, today, I really don't like to be in WhatsApp chat groups, except for convenient administrative proceedings right, or procedures. You realize once the group gets bigger, the worst place to have a theological discussion is on a WhatsApp chat group. The other bad place to have a theological discussion or debate is on Facebook or any of these social media things. Point for us to note, you don't have to answer every WhatsApp message. You don't have to respond to every Facebook post. You know, some people will read some of these things and they cannot tahan. They just have to be this armchair theologian and this keyboard warrior and you just have to say something. You know. I know it because I felt like that before. And there are times to engage and there are times that you don't have to engage. And it's okay, especially when people want to start to attack you and they want to give their opinion and you feel you have to defend yourself. It's okay to let it go. It's okay to withdraw. And by stepping aside, by stepping back, by disengaging, it does not mean that you have lost the argument. In fact, you realize sometimes and oftentimes it takes more strength to shut up than it is to say something. It takes more strength to withdraw, to control. It takes a stronger person to be able to do that, a wiser person to be able to do that than just to shoot off your mouth or let your fingers poke someone's eye and later you live to regret it. There's a time to answer, there's a time to engage, but know when to engage. You know, in the book of Proverbs, the, the book of wisdom, I came across these two verses some years ago and this has been my guide all this time. In verse 4 of chapter 26, Proverbs, it says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. And then in verse 5, the very next verse, almost sounding like it's a contradiction, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So do you answer or you don't answer? The answer is yes. Can you see this tension again? And how do you know? You need wisdom. There are times where you need to say something so that this person can be corrected or can be shifted back to the right place or to be put back in his place or her place. But it doesn't work all the time. And a fool is called a fool not because he's, he, he, he doesn't have A-levels or you know, he's called badly in PSLE. A fool in the Bible is one who is rebellious. He doesn't want to listen to anything. And he thinks he's very smart in the first place. Now, with someone like that, you can't talk. Now, the moment you engage and you get caught in this kind of a discussion, not only is he a fool, you become the fool. You become like him or like her. And after a while, it's not who is right, you know. It becomes who is the bigger fool. So pick your battles. You understand? Right? Oppositions can come against you. Ask the Lord, be led by the Spirit and to know and to have the wisdom and to have the discernment when to say something and when it's not your place to say anything. Pick your battles, point number one. Point number two, opposition to assignments need not be distraction from assignments. Did you hear this? Okay, I want you to see this difference. An opposition to an assignment need not become for you a distraction from your assignments. You see, after Jesus withdrew in verse 15, great multitudes followed him again and he healed them all. 
kingdom assignments will face opposition. It's a part of, it's a part of the whole deal. But don't let an opposition become a distraction. Now, what do I mean by this? Jesus faced an opposition. He knew to disengage. Why? Because it's very clear. His priority at that point in time is not to fight with these guys. His priority is to move on kingdom assignment. And so there was an opposition, but he didn't allow it to be a distraction. He took opposition in his stride, but his kingdom assignment remained his priority. You notice there were times that he will, he will speak against the leaders, he will give his point of view, but he didn't spend all his time refuting, rebutting all these religious leaders. He said what he needed to say, and he moved on, right? And so don't waste your time fighting with people, and the opposition is there to block you and to delay you, but if you stay too long, it becomes a distraction and you actually miss out on what you should really be doing. And I love this point because I see Jesus in all of his ministry and coming against these opposition and especially the religious leaders. In pointing out their errors, that was not his main deal, you know. After he points it out, he goes on, he demonstrates what the kingdom of God is. Now, don't miss this one. Today, we have too many people trying to tell people what is right, but they don't show by living out what is right. And so you have a lot of complainers, you've got a lot of gripers, you've got a lot of talkers, but you've got very few people moving on kingdom assignment. Think about this for a while, okay? And I pray that we don't fall into that same trap. It's so easy, especially now with social media, Everyone has an opinion and everyone has a platform to express that opinion. Too many have too much to say and then nothing to show for it. What's the key to understanding this second point and to moving correctly on this one? The key is really to ask yourself, what is your assignment? What's the problem? Our problem is people don't know their assignment. And so they get caught in, you know, they get influenced by the latest fad, the biggest trend, and they just want to be in on something, but not on the thing that they should be in. And so they'll jump on any bandwagon and they'll just lend a voice. This is called the herd mentality, by the way. Huh? Okay? And when it comes to election time, huh, you can see a lot of people like that. A lot of people, a lot of things to say. They'll jump into this party, that party, say this, say that. Huh? But when you ask them to do something, huh, they don't really know what to do. The problem is this. Many of us don't know the kingdom assignment. And can I just tell you one more time? Complaining against the institution or the church is not your assignment. This is not the main assignment. Don't make that your assignment. People will take it and say, Oh, I'm the one, you know, I'm the watchman, you know. Ayo, we have enough voices. Lah. We need more people on proper assignment. If you look at the society today, if you look at the kingdom of God coming against the kingdom of darkness, or can I put it the other way around? The kingdom of darkness coming against the kingdom of God. Why? Because we are advancing. There are many, many battlefronts. In our terms today, we'll call it, there will be many opposition points. Which one is yours? You see, you have to ask yourself, which battlefront am I called to fight in? 
if you follow people who know they are battle fronts, uh, they are very passionate. They are very passionate because they know their assignment, they are moving on that one. So they push back opposition. For example, things that are coming against kingdom values, um, the LGBT agenda, right? So there's this wow, big push. It's an opposition. Those who know their assignment will push back on this one. Another one will be the pro-life versus the pro-choice. Abortion, and you push. Uh, the other one, uh, we need fostering because uh, families are broken down now. So we, we've got to help these people. Another one, mental awareness. Another one, artificial intelligence. Another one, human rights, feminism, poverty. You've got so many of these battlefronts. Now, if you don't know which one you're supposed to be fighting in, you'll be fighting in everyone and getting distracted from whatever you should be doing. And that's why you see Christians, they are misguided, they are distracted. You know why they are so busy? Because they don't know which battle they are fighting. Someone shout this one, they post. Someone fight, you know, they post. Someone fight, you know, and then they are fighting all over the place. When you ask them, what's your assignment? I don't know, I'm a poster. <laughs> I mean, it's good that you help. I mean, it's good to be aware. But can you imagine a soldier fighting on, on eight fronts? You will die. Correct? You're not called to do that. That's not your battlefront. You need to know where your area of operation is and stay there and do your part. And as you do that, there will be opposition that comes against you. You don't have to look for anything else. And so if you are not clear, these are the oppositions that are not yours to fight. Suddenly, you are picking all these things up. And we want to be in on everything and we end up with nothing. And I think sometimes in the church, we suffer from this FOMO syndrome, right? This fear of missing out. Thinking that the more we do, the better it is. And then the enemy is so happy. They just fire at you from different locations uh, and he gets you spinning all over the place. Now, don't swing to the other extreme either, okay? I'm not saying be an ostrich and let your head be buried in the sand to say, I don't know, I don't know, I don't see, I don't care, I just want to come for Bible study. That also is wrong. So you need to know what these causes are. You need to know uh, what's happening. But as you become aware, ask the Lord to show you where your area of responsibility is that you can then fight in the right battles. You know, sometimes in the church, leaders, because we are also busy in so many different things, the important battles, we are not teaching our people how to fight. We're actually fighting how to keep the church together. You know, which is the craziest thing. The right battles are out there. Okay, so don't swing to either extremes. Just understand opposition to assignments is par for the course. But don't let oppositions to assignments become distractions from your assignments. Point number three. Don't compromise prophetic purpose for promotion and popularity. Interestingly, as I read this, Jesus withdrew from that opposition and suddenly everyone was clamoring after him and he is healing everyone. And in verse 15 it says, Yet he warned them not to make him known. And I see that actually the caution here is the opposite of opposition is not no opposition only. The opposite of opposition is promotion. That can take you off course also. Have opposition, also got problem. No opposition, too much promotion, also you got problem. You see, Jesus was on his assignment. He was healing the people. And the signs, as we have been learning in the book of Matthew, the signs in and of themselves are not the main deal. The signs point to the Messiah. 
The question is, were the people following the signs or were the people following the Messiah? Now, this same question must be asked of the church crowds that we have today also. Are you following a certain teaching? Are you following a certain pattern? Are you following a certain trend? Or are you following Jesus? And the book Alignment Check, you know, there's this chapter that says, follow the Christ, not the crowd. And so it's so easy, right? This is the biggest, the latest deal, the latest fad, uh, the nicest thing. You know, these are the buttons that you need to press. But for Jesus, he was not affected by the people at all because it's not what the people wanted. Now, he knew that they need healing, they need restoration. He understood that. But it was not just about that. It's about what he was sent to do and what his assignment was all about. And here comes the danger when there's no opposition. In other words, if we are not looking at opposition and suddenly there's promotion and there's popularity. Now, wow, we, th- we think, oh man, I'm in God's sweet spot right now, right? I'm just flowing. It's really good right now. Now, you've got to be careful. One thing we discover looking at people in, in ministry, you know something? It's easy to be humble when you're not known. But when you start becoming known, and popularity begins to pick up. Numbers begin to add up. More likes on Facebook pages. More people asking you to be friends. And your name sort of gets into a little bit of a limelight when your books get listed in crew media. (laughs) See, when you're starting out, it's very easy to be humble. I had one brother... Every now and then, we will meet up for breakfast and we will sit down and we will talk. And it's just so nice to have this accountability friend and we'll ask each other questions. And I know when we first started Archivist Awakening a couple of years ago, he just asked me this question. He said, how do you stay humble? And by that, you know, I started to be proud already because I thought he said I'm humble, you see. He said, how do you stay humble? And I looked at him and I said, bro, let me just say something. When at first, when you start out, you have nothing, huh? Humility is not the issue, you know. It's when the ministry starts to grow and that's when the problem begins. Because you think you're doing everything right and everyone is doing everything else wrong. When promotion and popularity comes down your track, you better be careful. You can compromise a prophetic purpose, i.e. or aka your kingdom assignment, just to maintain and keep that promotion and that popularity. Suddenly, the tune changes, right? Because the temptation is now to pander to more people coming, the popular vote. What do they like, you know? Um, Don't touch on controversial topics. eh? Uh, People don't like to be upset. If they're upset, what if they leave? You know, I worked so hard. I waited so many years for these people to come. I don't want to lose them. What brings in the most people? Uh, which day is the best? Which time slot is the day? You know? And everyone is looking for prime time. That's why in the church, we're always so busy. There's always a seminar. There's always a meeting. And everyone is looking for that prime time. Which is the program that will draw the biggest number? I can tell you, you can publicize a book or any program and it says it will increase church membership. I tell you, the leaders show by Because everybody wants to know how to increase church membership, right? What's the most convenient? Which is the most achievable? Which one will draw me the most likes and the most shares and so on? And that's why you see now in our social media era and the environment these days, we are sucked into all these things also. 
And I'll be lying to you if, uh, if I'm not affected by it. Sometimes when we share an article or we share a promotion or we share something, of course we want people to like it. We want people to read it. But do you realize it's actually very, very deceptive? Because how many people read uh, is not based on how good you are. You know? It's based on Facebook algorithm. So if you're only depending on these numbers and these statistics, your eyes would be taken off what a prophetic purpose is. And Jesus knew his prophetic purpose. He knew that his time would be God's timing. He knew that promotion is useless unless it comes from the Lord. He knew that popularity can be fleeting because people are fickle-minded. One day they will follow him, another day they will follow someone else. And he wants us all to follow him for who he is because he is the real deal. So never, never compromise prophetic purpose for promotion and popularity. I'm preaching this to myself in our Keeper's Awakening. It's not about these things. What would be our guide points in this point down here? Number one, remember your purpose. Why are you doing what you are doing? This has to be key. Remember your purpose. We don't want to compromise this purpose. If the Lord has said to you, this is what you must say. This is what you must do. This is why the people need this. This is the message that has to be preached. Remember what this is. Don't compromise until the Lord gives you a change of direction. Stay on assignment. Even if you're in a ministry or you're starting something and the numbers are not impressive. Kingdom... KPI is very different from worldly KPIs. Now, please don't get me wrong. I'm happy when numbers are there, right? I'm encouraged when numbers are there. But there are times where we find the numbers do not indicate anything. You do your part and let God bring the right people at the right time. You want to have the right people with the right motive, with the right heart. You don't just want numbers that you can report. The second thing is, be willing to stay hidden and stay faithful. This is Akipian talk, huh? okay? We are, we are Akipuses, isn't it? We are happy to be almost anonymous. Why? Because we are known by name. We are happy to be hidden. We don't need the titles and we don't need the positions. It's okay to have a position, but you don't depend on that. Just stay hidden. Just do what you need to be doing. Many times, we are too concerned with the results. But God is concerned with our response. Do you understand the difference? Right? We keep looking at what the result is. What is the result? God is looking for faithfulness. He's looking for obedience. And if you know what you've been asked and tasked to do, then you do it no matter what happens, how popular you are or whether promotion comes or passes you by, it makes no difference. Okay, so be willing to stay hidden and remain faithful. Third thing, trust God's timing and His promotion. Now, this is not altogether easy. Okay, especially when you see people being a little bit more successful or breaking a little bit more ground and having more breakthrough. The thing is, don't look at these seeming successes without understanding the struggles that came behind it and with it. Right? Many times we see the success and we say, Oh Lord, I want that. But do you know how much this guy cried? Do you know how much this guy had to suffer? Do you know how long this guy had to wait? See, trust God's timing and wait for His 
promotion. Jesus was not out there to say, come on, I've got the best deal and this. Sure, he knows it's good news and some will follow and some will not follow. But he just remained obedient no matter what. And he says, no, don't make me known. Why? Because he knows that if these guys start to make him known before time, they want to make him king in the wrong way. They want to put him on a pedestal in the wrong understanding. And so he says, I will not have it any other way. I will only do it by God's way. And so because of his obedience, we now know that God exalts him to the highest place and he's promoted to have the name above all names. Point number four, knowing your identity ensures your security. You know, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 18, Matthew quotes Isaiah, the servant songs that starts, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. Now, this is not the first time Isaiah 42, verse 1 is being quoted in Matthew. Way back in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, at the baptism of Jesus, when the skies open and the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus, a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That was a paraphrase of Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. And if you look at these two mentions of Isaiah 42, verse 1, I find it interesting that the very first mention is my beloved son. And the second one then is my servant whom I have chosen. And today I keep telling everyone and reminding everyone I can share and I can encourage. Your position, you have to understand, son first before you're a servant. You are a child of God before you are a servant of God. Don't get this upside down. You are a son before a servant. And let me quote for another book, which I recommend that you get. It's called Alignment Check. And in chapter 5, one of the very first chapters of the Alignment Check, where the title is Start With Love, page 35. This is what I wrote. Before Israel was ever called to be God's servant, Israel was regarded as God's son. Jesus was the beloved Son of God before He was sent to be the servant of the Lord. That seems to be the order of relationships, and it would do us well not to miss the significance and get it upside down. Or worse yet, major on one at the expense of the other. What do you start off first? Sons, when you first believe in Jesus Christ, you are adopted, you are a child of God, you are given the Holy Spirit by whom you can call Abba Father. You start off your relationship with God in right relationship as children of God. You are sons and you are daughters. But as we come in, then we realize we are bought with a price and now today we serve Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so we are His servant and we are His bond servant. But it starts with us being as sons and daughters before we become servants. Now Jesus obviously knew this very well. The Son of God knows that He is loved and He's accepted by the Father. And because He knows He's accepted by the Father, the Son then seeks to serve and please the Father and to fulfill the Father's will. And that's why he serves the Father. So if you don't like the word servant, why don't you just change it to sons who serve? I think that would be easier for you to, to stomach, right? Well, today, nobody likes the word servant. And yet Paul's favorite title was always born servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
right? If we are sons and daughters, then we know we are loved and we are accepted by the Father. Does it stop there? It does not. Because He loves us and because we love Him, now we seek to serve Him and to also finish and fulfill the Father's will. And that's why we pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done. See, once you understand this position, then your identity ensures your security. You are secure in who you are in Christ. Therefore, you are thus positioned for opposition. When opposition comes against you, you don't buckle, you don't panic, you don't worry, you don't seek the approval of men or the approval of system. Because like Jesus, we must know who we are and what we need to do. And even if we are rejected by all, by everyone, and you're left standing and no one likes you anymore, guess what? The Father still loves you. Amen? Right? You're still loved and you're still accepted by the Father. And His love for you is the one that makes all the difference. See, Paul and the other apostles all said the same thing. Peter, in the book of Acts, in chapter 5, verse 29, we ought to obey God rather than men. I mean, you don't like us? Tough lah. You don't like me? Sorry lah. You don't agree? Too bad lah. You know, I'm going to obey God because I'm His son and I'm His servant. Galatians 1 verse 10, Paul says, For do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? For if I pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Is this how you live, you see? Do you want to seek God's approval and His pleasure? That has to be our preoccupation. If we are bent on doing that, even in the face of opposition, we will stand secure. Our identity ensures our security. We fear God. We don't fear man, whatever the opposition might be. Point number five. Protecting your rights is different from declaring God's justice. Protecting your rights is different from declaring God's justice. I thought it would be good to slip this in. Verse 18 of Matthew chapter 12. Matthew quotes Isaiah and says, I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. And sometimes we think that to declare justice or to declare righteousness means that we must keep standing on our own understanding of righteousness and to protect our own rights. Sounds the same, but actually it's very, very different. Do you see that today there's a very big focus and a huge preoccupation of rights? Everyone is campaigning for their rights, Christians included. Now, to be fair, human rights, this whole idea, it's a Christian concept. Because the Christians were the ones, the first ones to say, look, we must protect everyone's dignity. Every person has dignity because we are all created in the image of God. Now, if you keep God in the picture, it's a good idea. But once you bring it to an extreme and God is removed, then you have to be very careful because it can become very self-serving to suit only one's selfish purposes. You take it to the extreme, it is totally ridiculous. Today, people are campaigning for children to have their rights to choose their own gender. So we cannot call them boy or girl at birth. We have to wait for them to grow up and decide whether they are boy or girl or something else. 
Today, human beings, men and women, want to have the right to identify as a bird or a cat or some other animal. Just recently, there was a man reported that he says he, he's taking it to court, he's exercising his right. If someone can choose a gender and change the births on the birth cert that point about gender, then he can change his birth date and lower his age so that he can date more women and more women would see him as 20 years younger. Now, if you want to argue that way, then a 10-year-old boy can press for rights to increase his age so that he can watch adult movies and participate in adult activities. Can you see how crazy this has become? But then again, I guess everyone has the right to be stupid and crazy. <laughs> see, as a son of God, Jesus knew his rights, but he rested and trusted in God's justice. Can you see the difference here? To protect your rights is very different from declaring God's justice. God's justice will stand. You teach it in the correct way, but whatever happens, happens. His rights may have been violated. Opposition can come against those rights and strip him of those rights. Jesus did not fight against that opposition. He did not protect his rights. And in doing so, or in not protecting his rights, he actually declared God's justice. And that's the paradox of the whole thing. As a servant, now I think this is what you and I have to understand and remember this. As a servant, a servant has no rights. See, this is the funny thing, right? As a son, he had full rights. But as a servant, he knew he had no rights. A servant would serve in a way to say, I will do whatever my master tells me. And if I get whacked, I get whacked because I trust that my master will come for me and he will maintain his justice at the end. His part was obedience. And in the end, he knows that his master and his father would know best and would fight for him in the right way. So Jesus came to declare justice, but in doing so, he suffered a lot of injustice. And yet to fulfill righteousness, to bring God's justice, he knew he had to die. And so for him to die, he had to submit himself to the injustice that the justice of God could be declared. I hope you're not confused. And although he was innocent and he was not deserving of this, he relinquished that right so that God's justice may be declared and proclaimed not just to Israel, but to the nations. Blows your mind, isn't it? You see how Jesus handled this opposition. It wasn't about his rights. It was the Father's will and it was the Father's justice. Are you willing to give up your rights so that God's purposes can be advanced through you? Point number six, don't become wrong in trying to prove yourself right. Now, many of us fall into this trap. You feel you're right, and very likely you may be right, but in trying so hard to show that you're right, you end up being wrong. Verse 19 of chapter 12, speaking of the servant of the Lord, this Messiah, he will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory. So what if you are right? The question is, how do you try to show others that you are right? 
Let me ask you a few questions and I want you to be very honest to answer this in your heart. In trying to show people that you are right, are you rebellious and quarrelsome? Do you always have to prove that you are right? Do you always have to complain and gripe when things don't go your way? Do you try to rally others to agree with you so that you have a stronger voice? Are you passive-aggressive? Do you take to social media to rant and to rave so that you stay anonymous but not in an Archipian manner? Do you need to always win an argument? Do you always have to have the last word on the matter? Are you one who just simply cannot let it go? And I think we struggle with this, right, if we're honest. But we think, no, I, I, I must be strong. I cannot be weak. You know, otherwise people will take advantage of me. But what if in trying to prove that you're right, you're doing all these things, it really comes out wrong? What if when you're doing these things and without you understanding this or knowing this, people along the way, they get hurt or they get killed or they get destroyed? Then what kind of a testimony are you? And how have you declared the justice and the righteousness of God if you have stepped on people and just to protect your own dignity and your own position? In another way, in wanting the best for our cause and our organization or our ministry or our church, do we only look for the strong, the talented, and the resourceful? And it's very easy to do that because we want to use the right people and we look for the strengths and those who are not so useful, we discard or we ignore them or after a while they, when they have served their usefulness, we just drop them by the side. Why? Because we are pursuing something. Don't become wrong in trying to do right or trying to prove that you are right. And as I prepared this, I'm reminded of this African proverb. You may be familiar with this. When two elephants fight, it is the grass that suffers. Do you understand the meaning? When the elephants are fighting, they don't care about the grass that at, the, at the bottom. And so the weak get hurt in conflicts between the powerful. And you realize that many times in church or in ministry, in the things of the kingdom, in wanting to have our way to push things through, people get hurt along the way. It can be... Christian against Christian, it can be Christian against the world, and we're just so adamant in trying to get some things done that we don't realize that along the way so many are hurt, so many are disillusioned, so many are, are just stumbled. And there are so many people in the church, in the kingdom, actually they're not interested in a political or religious agenda. But somehow Christianity today has become so political that you have to take sides and people are caught in the crossfire and then you have to, you are forced to take sides. You must sign this petition. No, you must sign that petition. No, you must post this article. No, you must say that. You know, and then if you're like this, you're not for me, then you must be against me. And people are so confused in the church now. Why? The powers that be are opposing one another, fighting each other and they're proving that they are correct but along the way, people are dying. Can we consider and learn the nature of the servant of the Lord? See, the Jews in the time of Jesus, they expected Messiah to come as a strong, aggressive, political and military character. But you look at the servant songs, it's totally opposite. Isaiah prophesied a Messiah that was one that will be gentle, mild, meek and humble. 
And when Jesus comes on, He teaches the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. He says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Can you imagine if you were one of those who's like, huh? Cannot be, la, wrong one. Excuse me, I'm changing church. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, take my yoke, learn from me. I am gentle and I am lowly in heart. And there's this nature that is within the heart of the Messiah. He's strong, he is clear, he is convicted, but he's so gentle, he's so humble, he's so meek. Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 quotes Isaiah. I will put my spirit upon him. Oh man, what does that mean? Today we talk about the Holy Spirit and we say, oh, you got to be filled and be led by the Spirit and you shall receive power. And then you read in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, and the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So are you led by the Spirit? Jesus was firmly resolute in his assignment, bringing justice to victory. But along the way, he's caring, he's loving, he's gentle, he's humble. To the down and out, he's protecting these also. To the nameless, to the faceless. And that's why it says, a bruised reed, he will not even hurt, he will not break, right? A reed was common in those days. It was readily available. They would break it off and use it as pens. And once it breaks off, you just throw away and you, you get another one and you can use another one. So if it's broken, no one's going to blame you for throwing it away and to discard it and to replace it. But Jesus said that he will not even throw anything away. He will not hurt anymore. He will restore, he will redeem. A smoldering candle or a smoking flax. This is a cloth that they dip in oil and the fire is almost going out and that's why all you see is smoke. There's not even light. And when you see something like that, what do you do? Have you seen a cigarette butt? Have you stood next to a rubbish bin with a cigarette butt that is smoking? Oh, it hurts your eye, right? It really smells bad, right? What do you want to do? You want to snub it out? You want to pour water on it, right? Just stop irritating me. And this talks about people who are down and out. They're almost gone. Their last glimmer. And this Messiah will not let go. This Messiah will not push this out of the way to say, you're no longer useful to me. He will redeem. He will restore. See, Jesus does not make use of people for His purpose. He loves them, serves them, restores them. And in return, we wholeheartedly serve Him and His purposes. In the New Testament, Paul gave the same advice to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 to 26, he says, But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. See, don't get caught in all this arguments, lie, fight with each other, lie. you know, I'm better, you're better, I'm this school, you're that school, I got more this, I got that. Don't. You know, they, they generate strife. Why do we want these kind of things? If you know you're really right, okay, don't quarrel, be humble, be gentle, be patient. Every time Paul talks about teaching, he says be patient. And I have to read this many times because I have to learn how to be patient when I teach people. 
are you a teacher? You know, you have to repeat things like 300 times before they like, oh, you mean like that? Huh? You can say and talk and talk until the cows come home huh? and they still don't get it. So what do you want to do? Humbly just correcting them who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. So if anyone opposes you, opposes the kingdom assignment, guess what? These guys are blinded. They can't see. They're not awakened. Okay? And they have been taken captive by the enemy and they are doing the enemy's will. Now, if you get caught in this, you get roped into and trapped into what the enemy's will is all about. I don't want to do the enemy's will. I want to disengage. And I want to do the Father's will. Do you think church will be so much more pleasant if we heed these words of Paul? Whether it's the leaders of our congregation, it makes no difference to me, right? We must stop quarreling and stop fighting with one another. Friends, we are on the same side. Finally, point number seven. Live by your conviction, but trust in God's vindication. See, being gentle and humble doesn't mean never saying or never doing anything in the face of injustice. Please don't go away with the wrong idea, okay? Don't go away thinking you're going to be a doormat, everybody's going to step on you all the time. That's not the point. Based on your convictions, based on what you believe, what you understand, there is a time you can speak up and you can speak out. But don't forget the words of Jesus. He says, be wise as serpents. See, our problem is not that you know, we say things, is that we're not wise. The words we use, the things that we say, the timing, our intentions we may tell ourselves are good intentions. But once the mouth opens, everything comes out wrong. Be wise as serpents. And after you have said what you need to say, know when to shut up and when to bail out. And be harmless as doves. Be gentle. Be innocent, all right? Don't become wrong in trying to be right. Be above reproach. State your case. Give your point of view. If it's not accepted, so be it. There's no guarantee that things will go your way. And if they're really opposing you, especially from a biblical standpoint or a kingdom standpoint, these people are really not interested in what you have to say. Whether you're biblical or not biblical, they're not listening to you. You can bring out your commentaries and be hermeneutically correct. Huh? They will throw everything back at you. They'll twist everything you say in the first place. Why? Because Jesus says this category of people, they are wolves. Remember? Wolves. And the last I read about wolves, when they meet sheep, all they want to do is eat. They're out to kill and they're out to devour. They're not there to have a yamcha session with you. Gentleness and humility in the face of opposition means, again, willing to disengage and withdraw if needed. Don't get caught in foolish disputes and strife. Now here comes, it gets harder. Bless those who oppose you. Pray for them. Forgive them. Come on, say amen. Do not avenge yourself. Paul says in the book of Romans, right? Don't avenge yourself. Give room. Leave room for God to move. Let God handle them. Trust that God will vindicate you 
in the end. So live by your convictions. I'm not saying don't have a backbone. Live by your convictions. Know who you are. Be secure in your identity. But finally, trust that God will vindicate. And it may not come immediately. It may come much later. But you know, at the end, God has final say. Jesus has the last word. So my dear friends, I hope this helps you to position for opposition. As we close here, the seven points once more, principles for you to go by and to discern how to apply in your situations. Number one, pick your battles. Know when to engage and when to disengage. Number two, don't let opposition to assignment be a distraction from your assignment. Remember, don't compromise purpose for popularity. That's point number three. Point number four, it's important. Know your identity and that will ensure your security. That will help you be positioned for opposition. You are a son and a daughter before you are a servant of God. Point number five, it's God's justice. It's not your rights. Be willing to give up ground so that the kingdom can gain ground. Point number six, when you're right, don't become wrong. Stay right. Learn how to exercise self-control. Be gentle, be humble, be led by the Holy Spirit. Don't stumble and hurt others along the way. No point winning one argument and killing 100 people along the way. Finally, live by conviction, but trust in God's vindication. When all is said and done, God is the ultimate judge. He will have the final say, and Jesus, our judge, will have the last word. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for Scripture again, and we thank you for the example of Jesus, our King. He is the rightful heir to the throne, and yet when he walked on this earth, he encountered so much opposition. And Lord, he shows us how to have wisdom, how to have discernment, how to have focus, how to stay true to his assignment, how to please you and no one else, and how to walk correctly even when times are difficult even giving up its own rights so that in the end, justice will be declared, proclaimed, established, and not just for himself, but for everyone who would believe in him, that same justice and righteousness is imputed upon us. And Lord, I pray, help us, Lord. We confess it's not easy when people oppose us, but help us, Lord. Give us that grace. Let us be truly led by the Holy Spirit so that we can be meek to inherit the things of the kingdom and the earth and also be gentle and humble so that people will see Christ in us and to know that he is a good king that they can follow and to put their trust in. And so we thank you, we bless you, Lord, that in the end, all things will work out because you have final say and you will vindicate your saints and the righteous ones. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.